0: Good morning. I'm so thankful that you've decided to join with us again today. Hopefully this will really be the last Sunday that we have to stare into this camera and uh, talk to people on the other side of a lens. So um, I'm uh, very excited that we're getting to reopen our doors next Sunday. So if uh, you would like to visit with us, we would like to welcome you to do so. You can check out our policies and procedures for this weird season of life that we're in on our Facebook page or on our webpage. So you go and check that out at havenridgechurch.com or just check out HavenRidge Church on our Facebook page. So we're continuing on in the book of John chapter 13, Austin finished up chapter 12 for us last week and uh, did so in great fashion, and so now we're moving out of 12 and moving into 13 to a very familiar passage, a passage that everybody's going to be familiar with, and it's when Jesus, at the time of Passover, he washes the disciples' feet. Now, there's a lot that happens in this text, so I really want to get right in, but before we start to really interact with the text, let me read it for you, okay? He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards, you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And, and Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And so Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean so let's ask lord's favor over our time in his word and then we'll get right to it okay so let's pray father we ask that you would show us great favor as we investigate the principles lord as we explore the beauty and the riches that are captured in the confines of just a few short verses lord i pray that you would captivate our mind's attention and our heart's affection Father, I pray that you would stir our affections up for you right now through your word, Lord, that we would experience a refreshed and a renewed sense of joy in sitting under your word, Lord, that we would see its power, that we would see and experience that it is alive, Lord, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, and that you might use it to cut between joint and marrow, Lord, and expose the deepest recesses of our soul where we need to be cleansed where we need to be purified Lord would you do that for us today show us great and mighty things in this beautiful beautiful text in Jesus name I pray amen So you're familiar with this text, so let's get right in. Today I want to show you four principles, just four principles from the text that I see as I've worked through this over the week. So, principle number one when we look at the text. Let me read the scripture first. Again, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that this hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, listen to this, he loved them to the end. Are those not sweet words to you? That Jesus loved them to the end. And if he loved them to the end, then that necessarily means that he loves you to the end, if you are a saint, if you are a child of God, a follower of a biblical Christ and a biblical Christianity. And so these are sweet, sweet words to us when we hear that Jesus doesn't just love the ones that are in the world. He doesn't just love the ones that the Father has given to him, but he loves them until the end. So it does beg the question, what does he mean to the end? To what end are we talking about? So before we get into that, let me share with you the first principle. Here it is, principle number one. The love of Jesus is as much an effectual reality as it is an emotional reality reality. Again, the love of Jesus is as much an effectual reality as it is an emotional reality. There is a difference in the two. There's a difference in the two. There's a difference in someone who loves you and it's Just emotion, and that emotion never gives birth to action. As a matter of fact, if someone says they love you, but it never gives birth to action, it really begs the question as to whether or not they really loved you based on a biblical definition of what love is. So here we go. We see that Jesus loved them until the end. What does it mean that he loved them to the end? First of all, it is intrinsic to God. Now when it says Jesus loved, we can say that God loved because Jesus is God, the second person of the Godhead. So we can say that God so loved. And in saying God so loved, we understand that God the Father loved, God the Son loved, and God the Holy Spirit loved. So what does it mean that he loved them to the end? First of all, we understand that the love that this is talking about is intrinsic to God. It is inherent and fundamental to who God is in his person. God is love. He tells us that in the scriptures, right? So we understand that the love that's being shared here is born out of the very basis of what love is, and that is God. So that should pique our interest. It should always pique our interest when we hear that Jesus loves, because Jesus is love. So therefore, the love that he has has a uniqueness to it and a peculiarity to it when compared to maybe the love that you and I share for others or, uh, yeah, for others. It says his love goes to the end. He loved those in the world all, all the way to the end, meaning this means this is the extent of his love. What he's trying to tell you is, is to what degree and to what extent he loves you. He loves, he loves his own to the uttermost. You know, it can be said he loves them to the end of his Life to the end of his earthly ministry. He loved them to the end of their life. But we absolutely know that the love of Christ, that salvific love that he places on the ones whom God has given to him, he doesn't just stop loving you when you pass from this life to the next. It doesn't just end there. That's not what it means exclusively. I think it means all these things. I think it means he loves you now. He loves you later. He has loved you before the foundations of the world, when he set his affections upon you for those he for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. You know he loves them to the very end. He loves them all the way to the cross. Now, in context, this is this is all pointing to the cross. This is where Jesus is moments before he's arrested, moments before he's taken and he's placed. On the cross, so clearly in this context, he's saying, "I've loved you all the way. I've loved you as I've ministered to you, as I've as I've uh, mentored you as my disciples. I've loved you, and I will love you to the and I will love you to the uttermost, all the days of eternity." Uh, one theologian says it this way: He loved them to the furthest extent of their need and grace. So don't think of his love as simply an emotional disposition that he has towards them. It's not just an emotional posture or an emotional disposition, okay? Christians, this is not what this is talking about exclusively. Think of this love as an effectual love. His love brings with it action. Action is accompanied by his love. There is an effect to his love. He doesn't just emote. He doesn't just feel towards you or feel for you. Those feelings he has, they give birth to action. We don't just have a Lord who has feelings for us, but out of those feelings comes action. We see this played out all the time in Scripture with regards to love. Because in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus even said, Listen, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, the testimony of that love, you know, the litmus test, the proof of that love is that you'll keep my commandments, correct? I mean, that's what he says. Listen, I would ask you the same question. Would, would my love for my wife be sufficient if it never manifested itself in any kind of physical way? I've been married to Sarah for now 15 years, I've been married to her now for 15 years and, and, and I, I, I say I love you all the time. But if I came home and I was emotionally vacant, if I uh, you know, never never did anything to, to prove that what I say has something underneath it or has something behind it, she would have a hard time subscribing to this idea that her husband really loves her. It's not enough that I would come to my wife and say, Honey, I love you. I love you. And nothing. No kiss, no hug, no 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 gifts, no words of affirmation, no encouragement. I don't pray for her. I don't I don't, you know, I don't I don't pull my weight around the house when I'm home. You know, if I do none of those things, how can I expect her to take seriously my statement of love for her when there's no action behind it. You see, love goes further than just some kind of emotion, especially the love that, that, that is being spoken of here in John's gospel. Jesus loves them to the end. And, and the, the proof as far as action being accompanied to love is in the fact that he goes to the cross. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Why? Because he loved us so very much. Something, when I read this scholar who said he loved them to the furthest extent of their need and grace, it got me to thinking about a a few things with regards to the aspects of the love of God. And so I want you to follow with me on this. I believe as I understand the, the nature of God, as I understand the love of Christ, it works out in this way that he loves us according to his nature and according to our needs so jesus loves according to his nature as god but he also loves according to our needs he loves us according to our needs as his beloved as his elect as the saints of god You see, God's love is admittedly complex. God can love and hate the same object clearly expressed in the scriptures. God can also uh, love his creation in a certain way. He can love his his children in a certain way and love his glory in a certain way. And all these can be different, but there's still a way that he loves because it's his nature to love. So he loves us and he loved these disciples specifically in John 13 according to his nature and according to their needs. And this applies to you and it applies to me. What does it mean that he would love according to his nature? He loves because we are the byproduct of his attributes. So he loves his creation because it's the byproduct of of his perfections. It's the byproduct of his attributes, his creativity, his ability to give life, his intelligence, and so on. And God has put on display for his glory, which he loves, by the way. He puts on display for his glory creation through his intelligence and through his, through his ability, through his uh, perfections and creativity and all of these kind of attributes. And he puts these things on display, and he loves them. It's his nature to do so because he's made these things as a product of himself, so therefore he loves them. God can love and hate the same object, as I've already said in just a moment ago, and that's not incompatible. But you say, well, why? Because on the one hand, all things are created by God, and on the other thing, on the other hand, God is Holy and his holiness demands justice against anything that stands in opposition against him. You see, his nature demands a certain response. Because of his nature, he loves his creation, but also because of his nature, he judges and he brings catastrophe and calamity on his creation because he's also holy. So he loves out of his nature or according to his nature, but he also loves you according to your need. Your deepest needs, such as salvation, sanctification, holiness, purity, things like this are all contingent on the love of God, right? You wouldn't have sanctification if it wasn't for God's love. You wouldn't have salvation if it wasn't for the love of God, right? Going all the way back to the incarnation, And it was his love that took him from position beside God the Father all the way to here, being born a man, fully God, but fully man, where no one would esteem him, where he would be smitten, where uh, where he would be afflicted, where he would be stricken and afflicted by God. You see, it was love that brought him there, love for the glory of God through obedience to him and the plan and the trajectory to redeem mankind from their sins, but also the love that he has for His creation. So the love of God is the root of why and how we can love in the first place. Specifically, how we can love Christ and His gospel. You understand that unless God first loved you, you would never love Him. It doesn't work the other way. It doesn't work... To where you suddenly have this epiphany, this awakening, and oh uh, 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 you know I, I, I get it you know i 'll love God now, and he 'll love me. You know it was love that brought you out of darkness and into light, while we were still helpless, while we were still sinners, Christ did what he died for the ungodly so don't don 't confuse the issue or don 't get it out of order. Listen to First John. Hey, Listen, Jesus, Jesus loves you according to his nature and according to your needs. Listen to 1 John 4, 19. We love, why? Because he first loved us. Is love not just clearly the motivator for things? The love that we have for one another is the love of God not clearly the motivator? Is it clearly not the foundation behind any love that we can express? It says we love, why? Because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Let us love one another. Why? How? Why would you love someone else? And how could you love someone else if it were not that love comes from God first? And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, but how are you born of God, and how do you know God? It was because he first loved you. You see, we can only love one another rightly if we have the love of God in us. And I know that's a bold statement, so let me clarify just a little bit. I believe we can express love in many different ways. I believe people from all different likes, uh, likes uh, sorry, uh, uh, walks of life can love people in all different ways. They can, you know, uh, people with all different belief systems can love people in different ways. But biblical love, a love that is rooted in the scripture, a love that is rooted salvifically in the gospel of Christ, that kind of love, that kind of love for one another can only be properly and fully expressed in the context of, of having relationship with Jesus. You see, husbands and wives, if you want to love your spouse rightly, it has to be through the filter of the gospel. It has to be. It grieves my heart to see couples that are either you have one spouse that is in Christ and one spouse that is not, or you have two spouses that are not in Christ at all, and you have to look at them and say, biblically speaking, they can't fully enjoy or express what God has given as love, biblically, because that kind of love derives from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think that's very sad when people can't experience that, and I'm not saying that Christians Uh, do this perfectly, because we don't. I don't love my wife rightly all the time. I don't love my wife perfectly all the time, nor does she love me perfectly or rightly all the time. We're flawed. Obviously, we mess up at that, but the point is to express love and to receive love in a way that is full, a way that is right, As I understand love in the scriptures, it can only be found in the confines of a relationship with Jesus, serving as the filter through which we love one another. So he loved them according to his nature. He loved them according to their needs. You see, the love of God is what empowers and compels us to walk in in Christ it's what compels us to love others Ephesians 5 2 says walk in love as Christ love loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God you see at first when I wrote this sermon I had kind of missed this first portion And I wanted to go back and revisit this idea where Jesus says he loved the ones in the world and he loved them until the end, specifically speaking of his beloved disciples, which carries over to you and to me as followers of Christ. And to know that the application here falls directly onto me as well. So Jesus loves according to his nature and loves according to our need. He gives us what we need out of love. He brings us to salvation out of love. He causes us to be sanctified by love. Justification comes out of love. You know, our spiritual growth comes out of love because it has to be rooted in something other than myself. I can't be the foundation. I can't be the blame for, for, for spiritual progression, for spiritual maturity in my life. So it all points to the love of God. It points to the love of God sending Jesus, who would lovingly put himself in harm's way, so that he might substitute himself for me, that I might then experience that kind of love. So, all these great things are rooted in the love that he has for us. The love of Christ is not just the root of our behavior, church. It's not just the root of our behavior or our good behavior, but was a motivator for the humility of Jesus. It's a motivator for the humility of Jesus, which brings us to the second principle that I want to share with you. Second principle is this. Jesus, the sovereign king who is head over all rule and authority, becomes the ultimate example of humility. See, Jesus left his position with the father in glory he set aside certain things he set aside certain knowledges he certain set set aside certain exercises of certain attributes and he became man and he lowered himself according to the scriptures He became a slave, a servant. He was mocked. He was despised. He was rejected. He humbled himself, who, by the way, had absolutely nothing to be humble about. What does the sovereign king of the universe have to be humble about? Why would the sovereign king of the universe ever have any cause or occasion to kneel before men? Do you see what's happening here? This is the sovereign king of the universe. And it's, and it's interesting to me how John sets up this text before Jesus lays his outer garment aside to put on the uniform of the servant. Before that happens, this point is made that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. You see, Jesus was not, he he didn't belong on this earth and he wasn't going to remain on the earth. He came from, from glory. He came from the eternal presence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He came from an absolutely perfect triune relationship with the first and third person of the Godhead where there's no flaw, no competition, just peace, just unity and harmony. And he lays that aside in humility To bow before these men, these sinners, in order that he might wash their feet. Why would he do this? You see, it was customary. It wasn't a strange thing to have someone wash your feet back then. Obviously, the people would travel with sandals on, and as you 're walking through a dry, arid region of the world all day long, your feet get dirty, they sweat, they dry, their dirt gets on them it, it dries i mean it, it was really quite quite nasty. And so usually, if you're going into someone's house like they were to have this supper together, they would go into this house, and then usually a servant who would gird their loins, they would put on a certain uniform as the servant of the house, and they would come and they would wash the guest's feet. So it was customary that these feet would be washed. And normally when these feet were washed, it was just simply to clean the feet so that the house didn't get dirty. But on this occasion, it meant a little, it meant something a little bit different than what it usually meant. So in this text, listen to what it says. Now that we know that Jesus knew, Jesus, as we're set up already, Jesus There's a recognition here to he's he he is the the son of God. (laughs) He's from the Father, he's gonna go back to the Father. This is not his home. He does not belong here. He's something eternally different and something eternally better and beyond and other than what we are. And that's the man that it talks about as a precursor before the man performs this action. It says he laid aside his outer garments. He laid aside these outer garments. I don't want you to miss this because this is critical for you to understand. He laid aside these garments. What do you think that means? And let me just say, if you get to this text and all you ever get out of this text is, oh, then we should uh, think of others above or more than ourselves. If that's all you ever think about, if that's the only point that you arrive that you arrive at when you read this text and you've missed the text. You know, those principles are true, but that's not the heart of the text. The heart of the text is not, you know, that we should put others above ourselves. The heart of the text is not, hey, we should kind of be humble people rather than arrogant or proud people. We should be willing to be subservient to others And consider others' interest above our own. Those are principles found in the Scripture, absolutely, yes, and should be markings of the Christian, but that's not the point of this text. So I say to you again, when Jesus lays aside his garments, what do you think that means? You see, in order for you to know what that means, you have to consider what's going to happen throughout the rest of the text. Why does Jesus lay aside his garments? So that he can put on the uniform of a slave. And in doing so, he has made himself ready to perform the act of washing their feet. Of cleansing them from their filth. Of making them acceptable to be in this house. So why did Jesus lay aside His garments? Does that not make you think of something? Does it not make you think of the incarnation of Christ? Does it not make you think of when Jesus was with God and was God and the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us? Does it not remind you of when Jesus laid aside his position in glory when Jesus laid aside the exercise of some of his divine attributes when God laid those things aside when he put on full humanity to accompany his full deity does it not make you think of that when he laid aside these garments because again why did Jesus why did Jesus become the servant why did he become flesh What was the end goal? That he might cleanse people from their sins. And in doing so, he might make them what? Acceptable to be with God. You see the correlation? Scripture says that Jesus comes in. He takes his garments. And he puts them aside. I can't help but think of Philippians 2. I can't help but think of Philippians 2 when Paul writes to this church. And he's telling the account of the incarnation. And he uses the same language that's descriptive or consistent with what's happening here in this early portion of John chapter 13. Listen to this. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself not of his deity he emptied himself he set aside certain aspects certain exercises of divine attributes he emptied himself of his position in glory where he was heralded and esteemed and loved and he came here and was smitten and stricken you know and 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 mocked and persecuted and ultimately Uh, killed, and it says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. A servant. When he's in this house, what has he done? He's laid aside his garments, and he picks up a towel, and he wraps the towel around his waist. Why? Because he puts on the uniform of a servant, because that's what a servant would wear before performing this task. It says, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross do you see those similarities when i arrive at this text and i start reading through i just it just stops me in my tracks when jesus in that moment he lays aside his garments You see, you have to get to this text and think gospel. You have to get to this text and find what the heart of it is and say, Jesus is pointing us through John. He's pointing, uh, he's pointing us towards the gospel. He's pointing us towards the cross. That's what's happening in this text. This text isn't just a text about how Christians should be humble or how Christians should consider others above themselves. Those things are True. If you arrive at that and you go no further, then you've missed the heart of the text. The heart of the text is the gospel. Jesus is pointing you to it. He's saying, listen, I'm going to lay aside my garments. Why? Because that's what he had to do in order to be here and put on flesh. Laying aside these things that he had with God the Father and putting on flesh was the taking the towel and wrapping it around his waist so that he could do what he had to do to make sure that men were purified of their sins. But as clear as this may be to us, it was lost on them. Because Peter's, Peter would protest Christ's humility because in his mind... He was set on the things of man and not on the things of God. That's principle number three. A mind set on the things of God or m- are more likely to identify the work of God as opposed to a mind that is set on the things of men. Let me say that one more time for you. A mind set on the things of God are more likely to identify the work of God as opposed to a mind that is set on the things of man. Listen to The text beginning in verse 6. So Jesus came to Simon Peter. This is after he had wrapped the towel around his waist. He came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, or Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no share with me. So again, Peter, who I know gets a bad rap, but I love Peter. I identify well with Peter. I think everyone does because we're always out of balance. One moment we're up here and doing great for the Lord, and the next minute we're struggling. One minute we represent the Lord well, and then the next day or the next second. We're, we're failing to represent Him, or we misrepresent Christ altogether. And that's human nature, right? That's, that's being broken, being fallen. I'm not making excuses or justifications. I'm just giving an explanation. We're broken and we're fallen, so we always teeter and we totter. Simon Peter refuses to have his feet washed by Christ. While this is commendable... Because Peter was attempting to humble himself, he missed the point altogether because his mind was set on the things of man. And this is something that we all struggle with. Our default mode is often to look, is often to look towards the natural as opposed to the supernatural. It's, it's often, our default is to think on the things of man, the things here and now, and not on the things that are eternal or supernatural. This is, this is a theme all throughout Scripture. Peter does it the woman at the well did it the the uh the 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 Pharisee uh, who met in the cover of night Jesus in John chapter 3 this happens all the time and you and I do the same thing and this wasn't the first time Peter was guilty of such an action if you'll recall in Matthew chapter 6 verses 21 through 23 you know uh Peter is, is Jesus is telling the disciples about what's going to happen to him. And Peter catches on that Jesus is basically talking about his death. And Peter steps up, steps up and says, no way, man, not you. (laughs) You know, Peter gets very bold, which I appreciate. And he says, no way, not you. That's not going to happen. And what does Jesus do there in that chapter of Matthew six? He says, he says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, even in that text, it says that Peter took Jesus aside, and he began to rebuke him. I mean, who does that? He starts rebuking Jesus, and Jesus says, you get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan for crying out loud. I mean, is there a worse, is there a worse put down? Is, is there anything more condescending than calling someone Satan? I mean, Jesus made his point. Why? Because Peter is standing in the way of the cross, Jesus is saying, this is where I've got to go, and if Peter's an obstruction to that, guess, guess what role he's filling? The role of Satan. You see, we have to always have the right lenses on, the lenses that look for what God is doing through his providence and through his sovereign plan, even though we don't always know what is going on. And I'm so glad that Jesus decided to say that and put that in there. And I completely Completely believe it wasn't by happenstance. I mean, here Peter is, and he's saying, Lord, <laughs> you know, you not my feet. You're not going to do this. Peter's a little puzzled here. He's wondering, why is this happening? And Jesus says, look, I know you don't understand, but, but you will. You will. He, he, he calms him. He pacifies him a little bit just to let him know this might be confusing to you, but you will understand. And isn't isn't that the way it is with us now? You know, we want to know everything that God's got in store for us around every corner or every bend, but we just don't. But to see Jesus and his love for the disciples here, specifically for this disciple, this out-of-balance disciple, and he says, listen, Peter, you don't know what I'm doing, but you will. Rather than slapping Peter in the face, rather rather than calling him Satan again, He very compassionately, very gently, I'm assuming, maybe, I I don't know that it was gently, but that's my assumption that he says to Peter, you don't know now, but you will. You will. Couched right in the middle of this exchange, Jesus and Peter reveal to us this profound theological truth, and that's that Jesus is always working. He always has something in store, Even though, and especially when we don't know what that is. You know it's okay that you don't know, right? You haven't earned a right to know what God is doing next. You haven't earned that. You don't deserve that. You don't have any kind of right to that. You're not entitled to that. Not that I don't know anybody that thinks they are entitled to that, but I think sometimes we do act that way. I think sometimes we function practically as if it would behoove God to tell me what's around the corner because I don't like being left in suspense. If that's you, then shame on you, or if that's me, shame on me. Maybe we should default to this kind of scenario to where we say, okay, I'm going to lean on this truth that God is working and I don't understand it, but maybe I will later. And then it's time to implement your understanding and practice of your theology of waiting and patience. And so to be quite honest, to be quite frank, I think sometimes we Christians just need to suck it up and trust Christ. In many ways, this information age has created a discontentment for us when it comes to the mysteries of the Bible into the actions of God. We're in an age where we can Google something, we can go to whatever search engine we choose—Yahoo, Google, Bing, whatever it is that you use—and you can find, you can find a a, a a treasure trove of information with regards to whatever you search. But it's not so with the mysteries of God, is it? You can't Google that. Those aren't at your fingertips, are they? Because those are for God to reveal. When He's ready. I think this comes as a timely reminder that even in the midst of confusing, irrational, and turbulent times, Jesus is working things out. And this is not a popular Christian, this is not just because it's popular Christian cliche, this is the resounding theological mantra of the scriptures. You understand that, right? You understand that Christians are expected to suck it up and trust Christ. To say, hey, I don't know what's around every corner, but I have to trust God. I have to trust in what he's doing. He tells me not to be anxious because he's got my back. He's got things taken care of. I just have to rest in that. I just have to hang back and trust that things are gonna happen. I need to act when I'm supposed to act. I need to stay put when I need to stay put. And i got to wait and see what the Lord reveals, if he so chooses. In one instance, Peter goes from one extreme to the next. You'll never wash my feet. And then he says, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and wash my head as well. Peter just turns and he does an about face. You know, I need you to go the distance, Jesus. I need you to cover, cover my whole body. Just take care of me from top to bottom. One commentator points out the fact that Peter seems to uh he points out some some he seems to lose his balance all the time what I'd already mentioned a moment ago he says uh, uh well some text to refer to that on the one hand he was walking on water and the next he's screaming for the lord to save him uh at one point on one hand he is making a profound confession uh of the lord and on the other hand he's rebuking the lord that's the case of Matthew 6 you're the Christ the son of the living god And then moments later, he's pulling Jesus aside and rebukes him. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In another instance, on the one hand, Peter says, you're not washing my feet. But yeah, now he's saying, you wash my hands and my head. And then on another instant, he cuts off a centurion's ear. And then moments to defend Christ. And then moments later, he denies Christ. Not once, twice, but three times. See, Peter's life was a bit out of balance at times. And I think it's easy for us to lose our balance in the same way. There's a spiritual balance that we're always trying to maintain. You know, my wife and I, we used to watch the show Survivor years ago, and what I loved about the show Survivor were the obstacles or the, uh, the tasks that they would have to perform in order to get immunity or get reward or whatever it was. Like I said, it's been a while. And I remember one that I saw them do season after season, and they would have these tall poles that would come out of the water, and you would have the contestants have to climb up to the top of these tall poles, and they would just have to stand there. It didn't seem like it was that difficult. You're just standing on top of a pole, and eventually the last one standing wins that challenge. And I got to thinking about that and how it relates to the Christian life because you see for the contestants of survivors standing on those poles, people were not throwing rocks at them or anything like that, but they were battling certain elements. They were battling wind. Maybe they were battling rain. They were battling fatigue. They were battling hunger. They were battling just pure exhaustion because they've been living on this island fairly malnourished for a good while, right? And I think of the Christian life in the same way. I think that we're on this pole, we're standing here, we're trying to balance faith, we're trying to balance truth, we're trying to hold all of these things together as best as we can. And all the while there's all of the arrows of the enemy, there's all of these things of the world that are being shot at us, that are being catapulted at us, and we're trying to dodge these things while mi- while maintaining our balance on this little narrow pole. Sometimes we fall. And by God's grace, we get back up and we start the process all over again. I think that's the Christian sojourn. So I'm not angry with Peter. (laughs) I identify with Peter. Because maybe tomorrow morning I'll start off and I'll be balancing these things and I'll be reflecting Jesus well and then something will happen that will derail me and my faith might be weak in that moment and guess what i do i fall off i lose balance and i succumb to all the elements of the world and there's a lot of those things aren't there there's a lot of fear now if it's not, <laughs> if it's not covid-19 it's rioting if it's not rioting it's murder hornets i mean it's it's that's kind of funny not the riots and covid-19 but the murder hornets i mean there's all these things, what's next? I saw, a, I saw a meme the other day that said something about the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man's coming next in 2020. I thought that was hilarious, but it's like, you know what? It seems crazy, but that's, but that's how 2020's been for us. There's a lot of fear right now, political unrest, a shifting culture. There's wedges that are being driven between evangelical Christians over various issues. And we're trying to balance truth, faith. Where are we or where are you most likely to set your minds on the things of man? And you see, that's what Peter did. That's what so many have done. As we set our minds on the things of man as opposed to setting our minds on the things of God. This is a major element that separates Christianity from the rest of the world, is the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview. You see, with the the current turbulence in our country, we have to think about things from a supernatural vantage point. We have to think about things and filter them as they should be, and that is with our minds set on the things of God and not on the things of man instead of fighting against systems institutions inferences and assumptions we should wage war against the root issue and that's sin for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood but against the prince of the power of the air and real dark forces i'm not saying there's not awful things that are happening i'm not saying there aren't mistreat bad mistreatment of other people i'm not saying that these things aren't happen aren't happening they absolutely happen but I want to be very clear in saying that there is a root of all these things no matter what no matter what no matter what kind of label you slap on it the root of all of it is the fall because of sin and repentance must come before reform so what does it look like practically to set your mind on the things of God as opposed to man well in any given scenario we have to think of the eternal consequences and implications of all things. In witnessing, we need to think of what eternity means for those without Christ. And hopefully that will override your fear or your discomfort. In your decision making, we need to think in terms of how it will bring glory to God. Or how our, or how our every decision lines up with the trajectory of the scriptures, specifically the trajectory of the gospel, and so on and so on. So the third principle in this text was a mind that is set on the things of God or more likely to identify the work of God as opposed to a mind that is set on man or a mind that is set on the flesh. Let's move to the the fourth and final principle, principle number four, I want to move back to John chapter 8, chapter uh, 13, verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. You see, principle number four is this. There is no religion, no belief system more exclusive than Christianity. You see, Jesus himself was extremely exclusive And exclusivity is not a popular concept in our culture. It's not. But Jesus was exclusive. How else do you interpret the words of Christ, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me? You don't get more exclusive than that. So yes, Christianity is enormously exclusive. Christianity says that it is the only way to be right. It is the only belief system, system, sorry, the belief system. It is the only belief system that actually answers the hardest questions of life, that actually makes sense of everything that's happened from beginning until now. At the heart of biblical Christianity is a life that works, is the life and the works of Christ. Listen, the uniqueness of Christianity is in the uniqueness of Jesus. Let me read to you just a few lines from an article that I read on Christianity Today some time ago. Other religious leaders say, Follow me and I'll show you how to find the truth. But Jesus says, I am the truth. That's pretty exclusive. Other religious leaders say, follow me and I'll show you the way to salvation. Jesus says, I am the way to eternal life. And other religious leaders say, follow me and I'll show you how you can become enlightened. But Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Do you see the difference? Over and over and over and over, Jesus proves the exclusivity of Christianity. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to Peter. Unless I wash you, You have no share with me. This line here speaks to the action as well as speaking to the one performing the action. Unless I wash you. First, he's saying you must be washed. Why must you be washed? Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because the wages of sin is death. Because we're born and we've inherited this disease, this sin that has left us estranged from God the Father, and the only way to be in right communion and fellowship with God the Father is exclusively through the Son, Jesus Christ. Not your works, not your church involvement, not your accolades, achievements, not your hopes and dreams, successes, failures, none of those things, but only and exclusively in Jesus' successful atoning sacrifice. We must be washed. We must be cleansed. And Jesus laid aside his garments and put on the uniform of the servant to cleanse these disciples' feet. And so too, Jesus left his position in glory with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and he became flesh. Stricken, afflicted, scourged, bruised, crucified. And then he conquered death so that we might be washed. You see, crucifixion was not new, scourging was not new. but of all the condemned individuals that died on a cross or have had stripes on their back from scourging, only one did so to the degree that you and I could have our sins cleansed. You see, our sin is on a scale of eternal proportions. And we must be washed, but we must be washed By Christ. There is one work sufficient enough to cleanse defilement of such proportions. Eternal. I'm not speaking of just global proportions. Our sin, our defilement, our brokenness is of eternal proportions. You say, how do you know that? How do you get that? Because if I die without Jesus, then I'm judged for an eternity with God's wrath being poured out on me. That's how I know that my sin is of eternal proportions. So I must be washed, but I must be washed by one, and that's Jesus, and that's the heart of the Christian message. And it is exclusive. But I want you to know, listener, That it's not a bad thing that Christianity is exclusive. It would only be bad if it were not true. Because you see, the promise that we have in Christ and through His gospel is that yes, you're broken. Yes, you are ruined. Yes, your sins are of a glo- uh, eternal proportion but that Jesus is so pure, perfect, and holy that he sacrificed himself and his sacrifice was so sufficient that he died once the just for the unjust that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's the heart of Christianity. And I pray that today you would consider these things. If you're hearing this today and you're not in Christ, you're not a follower, you're not a Christian, you question these things, but you think about these things and you want to have a conversation about these things, a real, heart, a real conversation. That I encourage you to reach out. Find us at havenridgechurch.com or write us a message on our Facebook page, and you can get to me or to Austin, the other elder, and we can have a conversation with you. I have a number of people here at the church that can talk to you as well. We invite you to come. We invite you to sit afterwards, and let's just have a conversation. Let's go have lunch. Let's talk about some things. Let's do this. Because if eternity is really at stake, are these things not worth talking about? I mean, if Christianity is wrong, it's wrong. But if it's right, then you have everything to be concerned about. And I think that's worth some thought and a conversation. I pray that the Lord would bless you and that the Lord would keep you and that he would, His face would shine upon you and that He would give you peace. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, Speak to our hearts, cause your word to take root and to build up and to produce so many things that are indicative of your word causing change that is happening on the inside of us. Father, I pray that we would reflect you well and that we would make much of you in Jesus' name, amen.